0: So, tell me if you've ever heard this before. Maybe somebody said it to you at work or you've overheard in a conversation. If I see a miracle, then I'll believe in this whole Jesus-God-Christianity thing. If He were to show up and display His glory and His magnificence, then I'll believe in Him. If he heals this loved one I have, if he gives me this financial windfall, then I'll buy into this whole Christianity thing. But until then, I just don't think I get it. I just don't think I believe it. I've heard that before. I'm sure you probably have too. But would it make a difference if that miracle actually came? I was reading a story this past week. It's, it's a true story a pastor had recorded about a woman in his church, kind of in her church. She'd become critically ill, and her prognosis, it was very grim. It was in all likelihood that she was going to die within a year. And her family kind of had a very nominal sort of church attendance. It was maybe Christmas and Easter, and, and that was about it. So when the pastor would go into the hospital and talk to this young woman, it was always like he was plowing new ground with her, talking to her. And in this conversation, this woman challenged him. And she told this pastor, if Jesus healed in the Bible, then he should be able to heal me today. If not, what use is he? So she prayed, the pastor prayed, the whole family was praying. They begged, they pleaded, they bargained. And they said, God, if you will be merciful to my wife, my mother, my daughter, then we will all be in church faithfully, from now on. And the pastor prayed with everything he had. He refused to even join the ranks of those who would pray, Lord, if it's your will, let it be done. No, he decided this, this was God's will, that she would be healed. And then, to everybody's amazement, she was healed. She was sent home from the hospital. The next, family, the entire, the next Sunday, rather, the entire family was sitting on the front pew, all dressed up. This young woman got up and gave her testimony about how sick she was on the brink of death and God had healed her and now here she is. The following Sunday they all came back again. In four weeks it was just the woman and her husband. After that, their attendance was just sort of sporadic until they dropped into their previous pattern. And before long, the woman had rationalized that the entire incident was just the healing of the doctors. She'd experienced this dramatic sign from God, this dramatic sign that God had given her of healing that was bathed in prayer surrounded by the church But after only two months, the power of that miracle had been dimmed down to nothing. And maybe you've seen it or witnessed it. I do believe that miracles can happen. I do pray, and oftentimes, that God would heal someone. We don't know God's will. But why is it that when people experience and witness a miracle like that, it doesn't always mean that they're going to follow In faith, the question I want to talk about: Why does it take more than a sign? Why does it take more than a sign from God for people to come to saving faith in Him? The passage I want to look at this morning comes from John chapter four. John chapter four, we're going to look at verses forty-three through fifty-four. John four, verses forty-three through fifty-four. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word, John chapter four, verses forty-three through fifty-four. He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death so jesus said to him unless you see signs and wonders you will not believe the official said to him sir come down before my child dies jesus said to him go your son will live the man believed the word that jesus spoke to him and went on his way and he was going down his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering so he asked him the hour when it began to get better, when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You may be seated. What we need in our lives is what John is offering in this gospel that he wrote. We need a living hope. Even this morning as I'm getting more and more reports of people and families in our congregation that are sick and suffering with coronavirus, it reminds us that our hope does not lie here on planet earth. Christ came down and he gave us hope and John when he was writing his book told us the reason he was writing The gospel of john he said it in chapter 20 verses 30 and 31 now jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name this morning i want to talk about three different questions to answer the question that i brought up in the very beginning first of all why did jesus perform signs and wonders And then secondly, how can miracles produce a faulty faith? And then how does true faith act? A faith that goes beyond just the miracles and a faith that acts in a way consistent with what it professes to believe. So let's jump into that first question. Why does Jesus perform signs and wonders? And we're seeing it coming out more and more here in the Gospel of John. We've had a few interactions. We've witnessed a few interactions of Christ with different people. First of all, he talked to a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were curious about what was going on with Christ. And he started speaking to Christ and asked him a question. And we see the question, actually, if we look at uh, John, if we go back to John chapter 2. I'm sorry, John chapter 3. Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Key word being with right there. He wasn't yet ready to say that he was God, but there was something going on with him. Why are you doing what you're doing or how are you doing what you're doing? And then also this Samaritan woman. In chapter 4, verse 29, this woman that Jesus met by the well. She said to the people that live there in Samaria, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Surely he can't be the Messiah, can he? Both the Pharisee, Nicodemus, and the Samaritan woman are recognizing this supernatural power. So that's this first reason that uh, that Christ does miracles to confirm the gospel, so that people will know that he is unlike anyone else, and what he's saying is true, and he's making a profession, he's demonstrating his power, It gives credence to his words, he's performing these signs, and it would certainly get people's attention. But again, Nicodemus is only willing to go as far as to say that God is with Jesus and that he was a teacher versus the woman who is coming to a different conclusion. This is the one who was promised to come. A second reason for miracles was to meet the needs of people, to meet the needs of people. As Christ was traveling around, he saw needs. He knew they needed wine at the wedding. He would know people needed healing. And in the book of Matthew, it records Jesus having this compassion on people. Matthew fourteen fourteen. as he got out, he saw the large crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Jesus was demonstrating his love as well in these miracles now think about all the things that he could have done if he just wanted to shock people it would have been a it would have been a cinch he, he would have known what would have shocked you more than anything else just by virtue of of being God but he didn't do that he's demonstrating his love he's demonstrating his power he's showing who he is there were other reasons Jesus did these miracles as well sometimes he did it to remove hindrances from ministry Sometimes Jesus would do uh, miracles to show people that the kingdom of God had come, and this is what the kingdom is going to look like. No sickness, no demons. But two certainly reasons that are emphasized here in the book of John are to meet needs and to demonstrate and, and confirm the gospel message that he's preaching. But see, the problem was, even after witnessing these miracles, people would walk away still not Believing. So, why is that? Why is it that miracles could produce even a faulty faith sometimes? And we saw it there with Nicodemus, still unwilling to take the step in calling Jesus God. Now, look at these responses we saw in the passage we just read. First of all, this response of the Galileans. We see it in verses 43 to 45. After two days, he departed for Galilee, leaving Samaria. He'd stayed there to teach the people. And then it says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. John adding this, uh, this parenthetical expression to explain something. And what's he saying here? He's saying that Jesus is leaving Samaria, which would he, in which he would have been more of a foreigner, and going into his home turf, where the Jews would have been. In Galilee, Cana, Capernaum, But this is where it gets, he puts this ironic twist on it because he continues to say, so when he came to Galilee, why did they welcome him? Why were they happy to see him? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So they're kind of like, you know, it's kind of like seeing David Copperfield again or something like that. Hey, here's the guy that does the tricks. He has no honor in his own hometown. Now it was similar with this nobleman. We meet him in this next section. This wealthy guy who would have had a lot of control, would have had a lot of power, he comes on the scene. He would heard about Jesus. He knew what he could do. And he was desperate. He had a son that was very sick. Now the man had traveled some ways to get to where Jesus was. It was at least a day's travel. It would take him a day to get back. And he comes running up to Jesus, and he wants Jesus to come with him. My son is sick. He needs to be healed. Now, Jesus does something interesting here. He doesn't just say, okay. He doesn't just say, okay, yes, I'll go with you. He doesn't agree with the man. He has a very kind of startling response in verse 48, Jesus said to him, "Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe." The official said to him, "Sir, come down before my child dies." Jesus said to him, "Go. Your son will live." The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What would it have been like? Try to put yourself in that man's shoes. Your child is at home and he's about to die. And now this man has told you, no, you can go, your son will live. But yeah, but I need something, go. This man thought he could command God. He thought he could tell God what to do and God tells him what to do. And although in a way it kind of seems cruel, no. Christ has got bigger things in his mind than simply healing this this boy. He wants this man to trust him. So he begins that journey home. He's got a a day's walk the whole time wondering, is this going to happen? Is it true? Is it real? Then we get to verse 53. The father knew that when the servants came out and told him that your son was healed, he asked when, they said the seventh hour. Then he responds, the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. Now it's interesting, this line that Jesus uses, even though the official and his family, they believed in Jesus, the critical sentence in this story is in verse 48, when he said, unless you people, referring to all these Galileans, the noblemen and the others that welcomed him as well, unless you see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. And the attitude of the Galileans is what's at issue here. And that's why they they welcomed Christ. Actually, the welcome they gave him was flawed because they wanted him to prove himself with acts of power. The same attitude is going to come about later when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6. And what these Galileans are missing is the revelation of who Jesus is which was key. These were called signs. They were signs of what? Signs of who he was. The point here is very sharp. They just wanted miracles, but they don't want to see what God is really doing among them. You see, Jesus comes in with miracles, but Jesus also comes in with a spotlight. He's going to do something miraculous, but he's also going to expose their sin. You see, their problem is a lot like our problem. I'm anxious, I'm stressed, even though he told me not to be, but I've got a decision to make. What do I study in college? Do I date this person? What do I do about this job offer? And you can get paralyzed with fear sometimes. And what I want is a miracle. I want some miraculous sign. God, just do something here. Make it clear to me. Make my problem go away. The thing is, Jesus is going to do more than just take away your problems. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis made this wonderful comparison to Jesus being a lot like a dentist. And my apologies to any dentists out there. But C.S. Lewis used to talk about having a toothache. And he said that whenever he had a toothache, he knew he had to hide it from his mom. He would endure the pain for days if he had to because he said he knew what his mom would do. His mom would take him to the dentist. And what would happen? He said that that dentist was going to fix it. It meant that he had to poke and prod at all the other infected teeth so he would hide and endure the pain, but it didn't help. He also said it doesn't help when we hesitate to be upturned or to be upturned for our lives for Jesus, for Christ to upturn our lives. He said our Lord is like the dentist. He's going to give you the full treatment. See, Jesus knows that he can amaze people with a miracle, but what he doesn't What he's not fishing for is just a bunch of amazed people. He's after something much, much deeper. He wants all of their trust ultimately to be in him and in him alone. And he wants the whole person, the body, the mind, the soul. As a matter of fact, Christ said, unless we die with him, we can have no part in him. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my Father can say without reservation that He is well pleased with you, as He said, He is well pleased with me. The truth is, faith does not always follow miracles. We see it back in the Old Testament. When Moses was leading the people out of Egypt and all of those plagues were happening, the, the boils and the flies and the, the Nile River turning into blood, even through all that, the Pharaoh still did not believe. Whenever Elijah was confronting all of those prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and fire came down, it consumed uh, the altar and everything around it, still Jezebel didn't believe. Whenever Jesus was performing miracles in the New Testament, when he was casting out demons... The Pharisees said, you're doing it by the power of Satan. And even though he had power over nature, sickness, the entire spiritual world, some who who saw those miracles did not believe. Even those who witnessed the very death and resurrection of Christ would not believe it. So back to our issue today back to people who say that if they just saw a miracle if god just showed up then we would believe the fact is god has provided plenty of evidence we've got evidence that jesus rose from the dead and all the apostles who walked with jesus they saw him die they saw him resurrected to life those apostles wrote about it, they spread the word, and they said, we are willing to die to get you the message that Jesus died for you, and he's been raised from the dead, and by trusting in him, all of your sins can be forgiven. And that testimony lends credibility. It's not an unrational faith that we have. If you're a person who's heard the gospel message and understood it, but you continue to demand more evidence in the form of miracles, you have to ask yourself, maybe there's another problem. What we need is a faithfulness that doesn't always get what it wants, but is able to fully trust God in any and all circumstances. So what we need is a faithfulness that doesn't always get what it wants. It's satisfied with the miracles that have already been performed, um, including the miracle of creation itself. If you've thought about that, if you've looked outside and thought, could all of this just happen on its own? That takes more faith than just believing that God did it. So not trusting in God after seeing miracles would be a faulty faith. So how does true faith act? I want to suggest uh, it does in three ways. First of all, accept God's wisdom. Accept God's wisdom. And think about that moment whenever you're struggling through a decision, whenever you don't feel like you've got all the information you need. Well, just think that through for a moment. Because God has brought you to a, a decision place where you're going to have to decide. And if you're at the moment where you have to make the decision, you feel like, you don't have the information you need, God could be saying, you know what, you've got everything you need right now. In my wisdom, I've given you what you need. Decide and trust. Make the call. There's a good chance if one of those options would somehow lead you out of God's will, those options would not be available. He said you have enough to make a decision. God's wisdom doesn't always look the way we want it to. It could be that it almost never looks the way we want it to. Think about that noble man. Everything in him said, No, Jesus, to do this, you have got to come with me. And Jesus said, No, that's not how this is going to work. You're going to have to trust me, and you're going to have to walk back home, and that's how you'll verify if your son's been healed. The Apostle Paul, he, God performed miracles through him, and, and yet... He complained of this thorn in the flesh that would not go away. It was God's wisdom to leave it there. Faith accepts God's wisdom. And then secondly, true faith chooses prayer. It chooses to pray. One of the greatest exercises of faith that you have in this life is prayer. As a matter of fact, anytime someone's um, talking to me, questioning whether or not, well, Chad, how do I know if I'm really trusting God in my life? My first question is going to be, tell me about your prayer life. See, that's the evidence of you trusting God, that you're choosing to pray, and it takes faith. I mean, you're getting down on your knees, you're closing your eyes, you're speaking out, trusting that God is is hearing you, and it's essential in the life of a Christian. There's a book called Prayer for Beginners, written by a guy named Peter Crift. He describes prayer as the hospital for the soul. And he goes on to say that nothing but prayer can make saints because nothing but God can make saints. And when we meet God in prayer, prayer is the hospital for souls where we meet Dr. God. It's essential in the life of the the Christian, the follower of Christ. And then finally, true faith welcomes sin's exposure. True faith welcomes sin's exposure. When you accept the miracles of God, when you trust them when you invite them in you also accept the exposure that he's going to bring in regard to the sin in your life now what's that like i want to go back to c.s lewis again for a minute he just he wrote so many good things i i want to bring him in c.s lewis talks about the exposure of your of the sin in your life sort of like the exposure of rats in your basement now what's he mean If you suspect that you've got rats in your basement and you want to find out and you go approach the basement door like this and then you reach out to the doorknob and you jiggle the doorknob real loud and you sling the door open and then you walk down the basement steps get to the bottom, turn on the light look around, oh no rats he's saying that's not the way this works if you want to know if you've got just gotta sneak up to the door and you open it real easy and you just creep down the steps. then you throw in the light then you see if you got rats you gotta surprise them and he say this he says this is how sin is often exposed in our lives now what does he mean by that he explains it this way the excuse for most of my sinful moments That immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected, I was caught off my guard like a rat who didn't get enough warning. Now, that may be an extenuating circumstance as regards those particular acts. They would obviously be worse if they had been deliberate and premeditated. On the other hand, surely what a man does when he's taken off guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. Now what's he saying there? You see, oftentimes when I get angry and I lash out and I say something I wish I wouldn't have, it's like, wait, it's my wife, she made me that way. No, it's this little boy, he made me this way. That's why I'm acting the way I am. No, these, it's the co-workers, they're making me act this way. No, they aren't. No, they aren't. You see, all that stuff, all that reaction was already inside you, it's just that now it's being exposed. Man, I don't like that. But see, this is how God exposes the sin. Now you see it, you recognize it. You've got some options. I can be overwhelmed with shame and guilt, or I can, I can by faith, recognize, you know what? Jesus took my shame and guilt to the cross, and it was nailed there on the cross with him so I don't have to go down the path of guilt and shame I can recall the gospel recall what Christ did and he simply asks that I confess Lord I did it again please forgive me help me to turn God forgive me for lashing out Melissa, Melissa I'm sorry again please forgive me that's it It's gone. Consequences can live on, sure. But the shame and guilt is what's nailed on the cross with Christ. And he took care of that. That's putting true faith into practice on a daily basis. So putting this all together, practice truth, practice true faith based on the miracle of Christ's death and resurrection. That's the miracle he gave us. That's the miracle we need. In closing, I just want to recount a story a true another true story by a guy it's written by david babel about a friend of his who had two twins named jonathan and christopher both born with a fatal disease one boy lived and the other boy died the question that comes up is well why didn't god work a miracle for both and in regard to that question the dad said this he said all i understand is this life is a riddle which god wants me to experience but not necessarily solve He said, when I struggle to solve it, I come to 1 Corinthians 13, 12, which in the original Greek says this, for now we see or understand through a mirror in a riddle. Paul said someday we'll see Christ face to face, but now we have to deal with this riddle called life, where things happen that we don't understand, when miracles don't come that we pray for. He said modern Christians sometimes rush to put God in God's truth in little boxes, neatly systematized, categorized, organized, principalized, when God's perspective on suffering is too big for any of that. And while for some spirituality is defined by what you know, God may be more concerned with how you handle what you cannot know. A riddle loses its mystery and its power, even significance, when it's solved. And by keeping us in our riddle, And every person's riddle is unique god is helping us learn to walk by faith and not by sight that's our calling to walk by faith to trust him even when the miracles don't come and even when they do please pray with me god i pray that we would be a people who walk in true faith god you came to do miracles but not just to do miracles To do signs and wonders, Lord, but not just to do signs and wonders. To perform acts that would ultimately lead people to faith and to repentance. And God, I pray that we would enjoy our walk with you. I pray that we would willingly accept and respond rightly when you expose the sin in our lives. Trusting you, Lord Jesus, that the guilt and the shame was taken care of through your sacrifice. And we thank you for paying the penalty for our sins and that through it, we can enjoy eternal life. It's in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Everybody have a wonderful day, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for being here.